The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Good morning and welcome to the Hard Luck Show. I'm your certified, qualified West Side host, Steve Lucky Luciano. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, you've tuned into the greatest show on earth. It's the Hard Luck Show coming at you from the Pico Youth and Family Center in the beautiful city of Santa Monica. Sitting next to me is my co-host, is Chumahan Bowen, American Indian, Southern Californian, elegant barbarian, and here with the Hard Luck Show once again. Yes, indeed. Yes. Yep. And well, we have a special, special guest. Yes, a, a literary phenomenon, a Southern Californian author, West Sider, West Sider, a writer, mm-hmm. West Sider, the writer, a West Sider writer. That's it, uh, Rodrigo Rivera Diebre. Yes, right? that's right. Yeah. That's right. Phenomenal. Uh, yeah. yeah. Only practice saying that about 15, 20 times. <laughs> did. Right? You did good yeah. though. Yeah. Did he, no, you did he get it. you right? He nailed it. He nailed, nailed it. it. He nailed it. He nailed it. Good. Now my wife, who's a uh, Chapina, won't yell at me. Yeah. <laughs> get the uh, explanations right, the pronunciations right. So, Rodrigo. Rodrigo grew up on the West Side. Rodrigo is the writer. He wrote a novel that's Whoa. just been recently published. Um, it came out a week ago. The title of the book is The Displaced. And it uh, primarily focuses on uh, the west side of Los Angeles, the real west side uh, of Los Angeles. His experiences dealing with a a lot of the changes over the last 30 years or so of the west side and the the impact of gentrification along with a lot of other things, man. Um, And we've been talking the last... We've talked for a while, but the last couple of months we've been talking leading up to um, the publication of his book and us supporting it. I just recently downloaded um, a copy that he'd given me that I have not gotten to read yet. Um, and he brought me in the book, which I look forward to starting to open up tonight and really dig deep. I know a little bit of the background story of it. Um, Chuman, are you up on it at all? I know I that mean- you've done some background work and... I'm up on some, a lot of the concepts. Um, first of all, let's ask Rodrigo, really. Actually. Absolutely. Let's ask you. Um, so it's a novel? It's a work of fiction or not? 
It is. It is a work of fiction based on reality, right? But it's uh, like a fantastical story. It's uh, ideas related to gentrification, but I use a fictional approach to it Mm -hmm. just to highlight some issues that are much more relevant that I can explore through fiction rather than through a non-fictional approach. Got it. And so it's called The Displaced. It says a novel. Where can people get this? Uh, it just recently came out, so you can get it at Amazon. You can get it at different uh, is there your a local bookstores. There is a Kindle version uh, that <clears throat> they just released that as well. All right, and so <clears throat> is this your first published book? Uh, it is not. Uh, the first book I published was back in two thousand five. I want to say, uh, "Urban Politics: The Political Culture of Sur Trece Gangs." Mm. Uh, I had just graduated from uh, Cal State LA, uh, studying political science. I had also just like had left gang world, you Uh know, like uh, and studying political science. I realized how politicized I had been in the gang world as a result of the peace treaty, as a result of things that were going on on the West Side. And it all just kind of made sense to put these two ideas together. Uh, the ideas of politics, the ideas of gang culture. And I came up with this philosophical work uh, called urban politics. So let's, let's put a, let's, let's stop there. And let me ask you this. How are you defining politics? What's your definition of politics as you're using it now? Uh, so the relationship between people, organizations, and the way I looked at it was like these, uh, unwritten rules that you have to adhere to go by uh amongst a multitude of people to make decisions that and those ideas kind of get passed down to different people uh throughout different situations uh so i guess if we just look at the political aspect of it the way that i'm defining politics is the organizational culture of how people and organizations function Right. So you have a larger group and then you have the individuals within the group and how those relationships work. Correct. Got it. And then urban. How are you defining urban? Uh, So same as like a non-traditional like suburban community where the urban environment exists at a level of uh, maybe like marginalized community, disenfranch- disenfranchised communities, uh, and communities that usually have to kind of work amongst a multitude, like on the underground level, let's say. Right. Okay. <clears throat> but so urban, you're saying marginalized and you're saying disenfranchised in, I guess in, in like layman's terms, right? These are people who aren't in power, they're not part of the official establishment. Is this also city, like like constructed artificial areas as opposed to rural or natural areas? Uh, yeah, so I would say it's like the built environment, right? Yeah. And in the neighborhood that I grew up in, in Lenox, it's an unincorporated community of the county right. of mm. Los Angeles. So right. it's like no political representation, like growing up, like never even understood like what political like uh definitions were or ideas because there were there any city council meetings there wasn't mm-hmm. any way like to yeah like there wasn't any hoas like in lennox there wasn't any way to people like, people wow. don't i don't think people fully grasp and it's not really explained it's kind of like this hidden part of 
Los Angeles County. But <clears throat> so there are cities and they have a city council and they, they, they do whatever they do and they exist within the county. But throughout L.A. County, there's all these sort of like pockets or areas where there's no official city. And so how is the county run or how is it determined? Well, they have a, a board of directors. There's like five and they're called the five kings of L.A. They're referred to as the five kings. And the reason is, is these county uh, directors, they control legislative, they control the rules, everything. And they're not subject to the same sort of requirements that a city council and its representatives are subject to. And as a result, and people don't fully understand, and it's weird because it's like a zippers of areas throughout L.A. County, which is huge. It's a huge area. These districts are broken up. And then these, uh, the county supervisors run it almost like as if they're a king. And the sheriffs, the L.A. County sheriffs Police enforce. It. Yes. And people yeah. get screwed out of property, homes, all kinds. You, you, it blows your mind uh, it, that this goes on in this day and age. Do I have that at least somewhat right? or right yeah. yeah, for sure. And so an example of that would be that my street itself was gutted, was dissected to build the 105 freeway. Right. And right. they sent letters out. The county did, but nobody knew who to respond to, who to like fight against to uh, prevent uh, the, you know, the government from taking their homes, from demolishing the homes, from building the 405, I mean, the, the 105 freeway. And so, you know, this is a clear example of people being disenfranchised because they have no clue as to who to even turn to to like contest these these uh major concerns about their life that are going to affect their lives right and of course there's big money for the construction companies they're big money for a lot of different people to make sure that this thing happens as cheaply and as quickly as possible yeah for sure so your first book is is it discusses that and that's not a novel that was a theoretical piece or what was that yeah it was a uh, more philosophical uh i had uh i had been studying political science i was really into thomas hobbes at the time and jean-jacques rousseau philosophers and that had examined different ideas of how people function uh in society through a social contract which right. is like uh, an idea of people uh, amongst making decisions amongst the multitude but like i said never having like an actual con contractual obligation these are all just uh ideas that you have to experience when you grow up in a certain kind of environment especially like in the gang world and so that's that's uh the approach that i took to that book it was like examining the gang world through a philosophical lens interesting uh, so big lux what do you what do you think about in terms of the politics and the gang world? Because I feel like sometimes, <clears throat> sometimes the connection, as much as they might sometimes seem opposed to each other, at other times they seem complementary, and it's hard to navigate all of this, all of these different political entities and groups and unspoken rules to figure out how can we develop like a unity or a sense of community. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely there's politics in in all of it, and uh, 
And if you're around that, that's what you grow up in or you experience, and you're going to understand those politics. And I think the politics on a bigger scale, if, if you, they're nothing but bigger, they're bigger blueprints of what you're going through. Right. They just have different names, and they make it a little bit more confusing to understand for a right. guy like me. But in reality, it's all the same thing going on. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, you're bribing people, convincing people, you're... Taxing, taxing. You know what I'm saying? Like implementing this, removing that, uh, saying what does and doesn't work, and somebody's making these decisions, and collectively, some people are making decisions. But uh, it's interesting. I'm gonna have to to read that book after I pick up and finish reading Displaced first. Uh, But it's interesting. Um, And then I'm looking at the back of Rodrigo's book here. Again, it's the Displaced novel. And it also says that you were the writer-director of an award-winning documentary called Dark Progressivism? Correct. What was that? So it was uh, an examination of the influence of the graffiti and murals and tattoo art on contemporary art. So looking back at L.A.'s history, the contributions that L.A. artists have given to the world and to contemporary art and modern art and how that kind of came about. So... examined it back to like traditional uh, block letters gang writing graffiti Mm -hmm. and how like that transformation led to what is uh today known as street art and how that is now accepted in galleries and museums so we followed that trajectory uh and examined los angeles and some of the uh major artists in los angeles and their contributions to that right so that's interesting because our show we've you know, interviewed, you know, Chaz and, and Estevan Oreo and tons Risky, and Risk. Yeah, so. all these guys have yeah. all come on the show and they've all talked about and they've all been a part of that trend or breaking through into quote unquote contemporary or fine art yeah. from the street level. And so what what do you, did you identify anything that most people would be a little bit surprised by when you did that examination? Was there anything that you thought like, wow, you know, people should know this? Uh, I, I guess, uh, what I, what we discovered the most, and I think what the audience discovered the most was that they thought that, uh, traditionally Los Angeles, uh, graffiti was influenced by New York graffiti, Mm -hmm. but the history of Los Angeles graffiti goes back to like the gangs back to like the thirties and the forties and like cement carvings and so, and Chaz is also in the documentary talking about these things and how he was, um, with his, uh, with his, uh, Zippo lighter, you know, going through the tunnels of the LA river and the Royal Seco and like finding these, uh, these, uh, this art, you know, done by Dogtown, right. uh, by these other gangs, you know, um, Alpine street and so forth. Yeah. He told us about that. And he said like, you know, because I, I, he, Chad said you, I was studying art too at the time. So yeah, when I saw bit. that, to me, it was beautiful, right? And he wanted to show that beauty and bring it out. And, you yeah. know, he, he pulled together those elements and created that iconic image that he's known for. Um, it's fascinating to me that so much important art starts out as something either forbidden, taboo, somehow mm-hmm. off what is accepted. And yet the establishment wants to find something and then accept it. Yeah. Why is that? I, from what I've experienced, from what I've studied, from what I've read, uh, at first it's a threat. 
right, to the establishment, to the status quo. So what's a way to remove that threat is to co-opt it mm. and incorporate it into the status quo so it no longer becomes a threat. And, and then I think we do see a lot of that today, right? This is what so-called ghetto fabulous and blah, 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 where you see people who have co-opted and, and brought all this in. Where do you think the, is there a point at which it can't be co-opted because inherently in the art or the expression, it is so anti-establishment that it cannot be co-opted? Um, I don't know. If we, we, if we look back at different art movements, like it seems like they've all kind of been co-opted despite the resistance. Right. Uh, so, but there's, there are graffiti artists that I've spoken to who refuse to call themselves street artists, right? Because they feel like that, that term or that label is part of the establishment. Uh, so they refuse to do this kind of work and they'll stay like doing the illegal graffiti stuff. Right. Uh, which they feel like that hasn't been co-opted because it's illegal and you're still, you know, doing like the vandalizing. Mm-hmm. So I think that's still being preserved by some people mm-hmm. that have chosen that route. So in writing The Displaced, what issue were you tackling or investigating? Uh, the issue of changing communities, uh, the dynamic of these communities that are that have been in transition uh, places that I grew up in or uh, just being around, you know, as a West Sider and then just seeing the changes like per month, like day to day and examining that in a, in a different lens by documenting it and saying, you know, I hadn't seen this before. I wonder how other people must experience it when they see all these changes in their community and they don't know what to do about it. So I I put myself in the in the I guess like the the driver's seat of the the characters the the protagonists to examine this from their perspective of experiencing this firsthand and 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 finding their own movement to resist these changes. Okay. <clears throat> and so it's it's called the displaced uh, and are you dealing with, you're dealing with gentrification, right? And how, yeah. how do you define gentrification? Like, what is it, the definition for you? Um, yeah, see, it's, it's, it's complex because uh, you're looking at issues that deal with urban planning. Right. You're also mm-hmm. dealing with an aesthetic form of gentrification, which is just uh, the difference in how people look coming into a community and changing the dynamic of the community. Sure. But we're also dealing with... Uh, homeowners associations that reject the uh, low-income housing or affordable housing in their communities and that turns into uh like pushing people into communities that like speculation in communities of uh of um uh, homes and you know and uh like the value of homes so i'm looking at it through different lenses because there is no other way to look at it you know it's just a community that uh, had traditionally been underserved, underrepresented, and now it's considered like an up-and-coming community. So what are th- what do these things mean for a community to be up-and-coming? <laughs> what does it mean for a community to be underserved, which all of a sudden gets a lot of investment 
through businesses, through a tax base, you know, through the increase in home values, you know. So yeah. that's that's how uh, I'm looking at it in this novel. Where you where did you grow up? And tell me about uh, growing up and where you grew up uh, on the west side. Yeah, so grew up in Lenox uh, by the LAX airport. Uh, my my dad worked here in Santa Monica mm-hmm. at uh, the Paper Mate um, Gillette factory. Okay, you know so. Was always here in Santa Monica. Also, uh, my parents lived in Venice uh, and in um, Del Rey for mm-hmm. some time. And during like the the '90s and the peace treaty, as a result of being a Lennox boy, spent a lot of time in all these other neighborhoods because of all the West Side parties. Mm-hmm. You know, suddenly I found myself myself being uh, well, not just me, but like the gang being in the projects a lot, partying with the Culver City boys and. Uh, like being involved in uh, the West Side parties in Santa Monica and Venice and different places. Mm-hmm. And so uh, when I started thinking about the novel, uh, I felt like it was always going to be the Mar Vista Gardens housing projects that was going to be the uh, the setting for the novel mm. uh, because it it's the only housing project on the West Side. Right. And it's often dismissed or not looked at uh, by the rest of the community because usually we associate projects with south central or east Mm -hmm, los angeles mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so the mar vista gardens housing project being so close to playa vista to the beach to uh google to youtube to all these like silicon uh beach you know or silicon valley uh uh, companies you know this uh, tech companies i felt that it was a a good place for this battleground sure absolutely you know, it's what's weird is uh, money and wealth seem to divide people on this gentrification issue, right? Even, right. even, even amongst color or original roots. And I've had conversations with For people sure. where, like, if they were broke, gentrification would be like a bad thing. But because they've made it a little bit, right? And I'm like, yeah, it's gentrification. And they're like, well, it cuts both ways. You know, all of a sudden they understand it in a different way. They, they like, like, yeah, it's changing the community. But then this person that I'm thinking of that I talked to was like, oh, but, you know, but this person also has money now. And so now they're approaching it from a different standpoint. How, how, do you think that it's possible to resist the change? And do you think, because you're talking to an American Indian, so when you talk about gentrification and changing communities, right? I know about that. So the question is, is, is it even possible to really resist when half of the people that might support you are going to get bought out? The... In my research on the city of Los Angeles in general, mm-hmm. if it's one thing that we can count on is that the city of L.A. has been in constant change since its existence. Right. So this is a city that has always reinvented itself. Right. And to resist those changes is really kind of like it's it's kind of futile in a way, you know, like because it's going to happen like this is what the city was based on right. these are this is the foundation of the city it's the principles it's why people come here to reinvent themselves the way that the city has always re- reinvented itself and so communities are in constant change in constant in a constant state of flux 
uh, and to assume an example, an example being like rent, right? Yeah. Like if you rent in a community and you expect your rent to stay the same for the next 20, 30 years, right? right? Like it's very naive to assume that, right? right? And so there's inflation, like even like the homeowners, the landlords, like their mortgage is going up, their tax base goes up, they have supplemental taxes, you know, whatever it is. So to expect that your, um, that your, uh, um, that your rent, you know, is going to stay the same. Like I said, it's just, I think it's, it's, it's a naive way to, to look at how we live in a capitalist society also. Right. And so one of the things that I see with capitalism is it has an amazing ability to co-opt resistance and in fact, then capitalize on it. Right. That's great. That's great. Yeah. I see that. <laughs> right? It's like it's it's an almost inherent the antagonism and the resistance is almost inherent in the system. It the rich people or entities need a burned out part of the city that they can go into and buy up cheap in order to rent to middle level or semi middle level people to reap a, a, a profit. And it's almost designed specifically for that. So I'm thinking about the gentrification and I'm thinking about, you know, like you said, it's a fact of life to a certain extent, the way we've set up the system here, that there's going to be change. And it's not really much, even, even the establishment has difficulty dealing with the flux, right? It's, I mean, so... When you're writing these characters, are you actually thinking about perhaps a solution, or are you just saying, "Look, this is this is the experience"? Definitely the latter. This is the experience. I offer no solutions. Uh, I'm a fiction writer for that purpose. I I had considered uh, studying urban planning as a master's degree so that I can make more changes, like at the bureaucratic level. Right. But I felt like that was just I was just going to be sitting in an office doing paperwork, and so instead of sitting in an office writing papers. Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right. But I could disseminate at least the idea better through like my art form. So let me ask you this then. So as from a from an urban planning standpoint, right? I mean, I think. I can't recall, but maybe the title wasn't exactly what this title was. Um, but you were coming from different areas and thinking about it. seems like we're approaching a, a, a kind of a critical moment in this country in relation to physical space and urban space related to the possibilities of digital space. Have you put much thought into where we are, why we are having these sort of, you know, eruptions of certain groups uh, like Trump and all these other things. I mean, do you see, do you have a theoretical basis as why we're arriving here now at this moment in the United States? Uh, I, I'm trying to understand the question. Is it like the polarization of people? Uh, I'm actually like in- thinking like, Maybe the way, have you observed the way we are constructing space in the last 30 years as having any impact on what you see in political movements and eruptions at the national level? Mm. Yeah, I'm a little confused by the question still, but as far as 
like running out of space maybe is that what we're no i i, I actually because you're talking i was thinking about it and we've been talking about space maybe it's better if i ask it this way maybe if i ask it this way is how your external space created or how it is built does that have any relationship to how you envision your political identity or freedom yeah, I don't know. I'm still like, <laughs> I'm trying to grasp that in a way that I can formulate an idea. Um, space is always like our physical built environment. And you're talking about construction. Are we talking about building in specific communities? Yeah. Uh, are we talking about like through construction? Are we talking about uh, developing underserved communities. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm still, no, I'm talking about, yeah, I'm thinking about just layout. Let's just keep it simple and just say basic layout. However, it's laid out. You're it's Lennox is laid out like this. Okay. And there's these type of constructs or edifices or buildings or whatever. And, you know, I, I'm just recalling that, uh, one point I read something about how just living in square rooms creates a sense of time by the way the lines, you know, don't meet or they do meet in the corners, whatever it is. Does this have a shape on someone's psychology, emotional identity? Does it control? Could we change this country by reinventing the way we build it? Well, it's a fascinating approach to it. Uh, what comes to mind yeah. is, I guess, jail, prisons, sure. right? Like, I'm thinking about that. I'm thinking about, again, back to the housing projects, you know, the way that they're, the, they're built and the way that they're examined. Like, it's also like a form of a prison with mm-hmm. bars and so forth. Right. Uh, and these uh, ideas came from Germany as like, a social utopian movement of how people can live in a harmonious state by having like indoor outdoor living. Right. So as I'm thinking about your question more, and I apologize for like no, no, not no. really These understanding are unscripted it. Unscripted or whatever. Mm-hmm. We're just going. Uh, it's how you live amongst the environment, participate in it, uh, how you plan around like having a community garden uh, being able to walk to like a specific place so looking at uh thinking about like a suburban environment versus an area like a a more uh homogenized and uh, a much more like um now i'm getting like i'm losing track here um the future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hold on, I'm just. It's all right. Yeah, yeah. Can we edit this out? Or, no, well, no, I we, no. Our thing is so what you're talking about makes sense to me, right? And the whole point is is that the show itself is a kind of natural conversation, like we would talk if we weren't having microphones. We're not. The reason why we have such popularity is because these are conversations that you're not going to hear on NPR or whatever because we're regular people. You're a brilliant man. You've written books. But, of course, as we talk without any notes or anything, you're going to be thinking and something's going to make sense or whatever. I don't half the time know what I'm going to fucking say or I don't even understand what I just said. So it's not that. But because Steve and I have been talking, Big Lux and I have been talking about a little bit, and you're, you're, the whole idea of displacement, right, kind of is sort of falling in line which is like you were saying like maybe community gardens where people come they're sharing food they're caring for something communally might make a difference on how they approach their group identity quote-unquote or what they think of the united states and steve and i were really investigating some thoughts about the way separateness seems to be reinforced at every turn in our country now separateness right and and i can see in physical spaces too like gentrification and all that stuff i can kind of see that there's this separateness so that you know one area can't stay one area for a long time because in some ways that undermines or erodes a political unity because once you get enough history and enough placement to, to really put down some roots, it gets really harder and harder and harder to push someone off of that and say, well, we're right. just going to buy you out. But we don't do that. It's, it, and it seems to be happening faster and faster and faster, these revolutions of, of gentrification. And I think about how is that going to look when we've created this metaverse now you do live in a prison cell, but you're plugged into this digital world where it seems like you've got space or will that space too become gentrified and controlled? Because at the end of the day, the system is set up to divide and conquer. And since you spent some time thinking about people being displaced, I was kind of curious just to hear just thoughts that don't even have to necessarily be organized. Yeah, the... And what what I'm thinking about now is um, the way that we grew up not being able to leave our certain communities, right? So you were confined to a specific space because there were rules where you would be in conflict when you crossed over to a different community, a different territory. Right. And then as advanced gentrification occurs, it it seems like, you know, you can now step out of the boundaries that you were once confined by and go to these different communities and you know people want access to things in their community right. so before if there wasn't any 
coffee shops, if there weren't any art galleries in your community and you had to go, you know, drive around like 30 minutes an hour to a different community for that, people are demanding it in their own community now. So you see these changes going on in all types of communities in Los Angeles because everybody wants access to that and they don't want to drive far. It's difficult to get from East Los Angeles to Venice, you know, to go to an art show and then go back home and they get something to eat. So it's like, I want to do it in my own neighborhood. I want to support my own neighborhood. I want to, I want to have that accessibility to things around, you know, where I live. Right. I, I, I see this gentrification and how it kind of plays out uh, ultimately to, uh, you know, so we'll just say Santa Monica where I grew up, but how it plays in a bigger picture to Los Angeles. And that is, well, let's just take, let's just start in the 50s. And in the 50s, as California starts to become even, you know, if you just looked at Los Angeles County and the growth, yeah. From the 50s on, the growth is so high, so fast. And what you had maybe in the 50s was you had some industrial stuff in L.A., mm. but you also had the motion picture business. Right. And everything that surrounded entertainment. Now, all that's going on in L.A. primarily, in Hollywood. And people are living in and around where they work. Right. They weren't coming to the West Side. The West Side was too far to get to because all the action was primarily being restaurants and entertainment. All that stuff was going on over there. Even industrial was downtown. So you had people over there and they wanted to commute back and forth. Nobody was coming way out here to Santa Monica and Venice. Mm. These areas were their own little communities. Venice was like the the hood by the beach. Yeah. People didn't want to be down here. Okay, Now they're like, there's just a lot of stuff people didn't want. Santa Monica was just this cool little community, but you had to get through a whole bunch of like residential and stuff that was like some underdeveloped and this and that to get out here. Nobody, the only time they were coming out here is maybe to go to the beach, but they had swimming pools. Up. As LA gets more and more filled up, people started going up into the Hollywood Hills right. that way and that way. And as it gets more and more built up, people simply were like, you know what? I got to get out of this fuck. It's getting. They started to start to understand um, uh, someone over the hill into the valley, but a lot of people started to get hip on like the, all the smog and the, uh, all right. that shit. So they're like, okay, oh yeah, no, the ocean. But so I think people started just coming way over here, and it was like, you know what? I'm going to get out of that mix. And they started moving more and more west. So they get to like the ocean. Like, fuck, man, this is beautiful over here, right? And it's cheap. I'm going to just buy this up. Freeways got better, whatever, dude. And so now you having that 10-minute commute, it's now okay to have a 20-minute commute. Right. Or it was people that had enough money that they had time to take to get to work. Right. And once people started kind of finding this, it erupted. Some people are like, I don't know that gentrification started really first, first in Venice. I think Venice got cool first. Because you had artists and you had a community like that. And now Venice started having all these people come in that really were like gallery artists, Dennis Hopper. Man. So, so they were like, whoa, man, like who are these people? But it wasn't a full gentrification. They were just having a lot of people they didn't know coming through, doing a lot of art. Yeah, there were some studios and a lot, but it wasn't like a gentrification. I feel like as that started to happen, 
like companies started coming to Santa Monica. You know, it was like a lot of these big tech companies set up right on the beaches here and you know, the north side of Santa Monica began to get very, very expensive. I think some of the most expensive real estates on the north side of Santa Monica in California. Yeah. And it started to become like that rich. And this was just a little beach community, bro. Right. This was not like, oh, you're wealthy if you live in Santa Monica. You got that. I didn't, it didn't grow up when I was growing up. It wasn't like that. You're like, wow. A lot of people were like, damn, you're way over there. Right. That's way over there, dude. Like, that, yeah. <laughs> But it became that in other things. And, you know, as 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 Venice becomes cool art-wise, that's going to attract a certain group of people, you know, and, and with money, too. And as different things start to come out, this becomes more and more attractive. I think there were a lot of people that were like, fuck, man, Santa Monica is really beautiful. I want to live on the ocean. And Dude, there's a lot of development along the coast that was not there when I was a kid growing up. I mean... A lot. Right? I believe that. And um, I feel like like it was Santa Monica who really started exper- experiencing like, like the real money. Like we're coming in and we're moving you guys out. You know, like this is going to work. Starting with the Pico, whole Pico neighborhood. And, and SMC growing and, and the north side, you know, pushing out and tech coming in. And the other thing is this is. Santa Monica had this huge, huge, like, they, they had an idea of the tourism that it could have, you know, Santa Monica. With the pier, with remodeling the whole Third Street Promenade, there, was, right. there came into play this whole idea, like, we got something more developed than Venice. We're advanced on the Venice. We could really lock this down as tourism, as the ocean and all that became more and more popular. And I feel like that played a huge part, but... I'm saying, man, 30 years ago, we were talking about gentrification, and nobody gave a fuck about what we were talking about out here. We're like, man, we're losing this city. We're losing it, bro. And these homes and these people are coming in, and and, and we're being pushed out, and everybody's like, I don't give a fuck of West Side. I remember going to prison in the 90s, man. People were like, oh, man, they're... They got palm trees and surfing, you know, like they didn't even know anything about this area, let alone know what gentrification is. But 25 years later, now all these different areas are starting to say, oh, yeah, we're being pushed down. And like by this point in time, these neighborhoods out here, with the exception of some of Culver City, Venice is essentially gone. West LA Hotel, that's all pretty much gone. Yeah. Santa Monica, the hood's gone. I'm talking about hoods and neighborhoods, but I'm also talking about people of color have been pushed out. I'm, I'm also talking about businesses and murals and the culture of these areas have been painted over or removed completely and cookie cutter stuff has been put in there. So it's really the removal and the displacement of low income, color people of color, out man and that's the cultural part that is bumming me out about it about this gentrification like you're you're priced out you can't afford to live here there's nothing that resembles your culture anymore around you there's no more carnicerias there's no more markets there's no more murals there's more there's no more people it now i'm walking around i don't know these people and the houses all look like different than they used to and I don't know, man. And like, so the, the whole gentrification thing is just, it's put a, a, a bad taste in my mouth. Sure. Uh, but at the same time, like, there's this new term called New Venice. They should call it New West Side, but 
these people coming from, I don't know where they're coming from, but they're looking at us like we're crazy now. <laughs> yeah. Right. When we walk through, see, they're like looking at us like we're crazy and we're the outsiders. So it's like completely started flipping over. And like that, you know, that's why this thing interests me so much. Uh, this book and the topic of gentrification, man. I've gotten to watch it happen. I'm 55 years old, man. And, you know, I was a fucking 11 year old kid growing up on these streets. And I've watched it through the years. And, and I ran around from Venice to West LA through Culver City, you know, all, all over this area, you know? So, so Rodrigo, in your, your novel, The Displaced, um, and you just heard big lux talk about his firsthand experience how do the characters either relate to or or how do your characters exemplify or explore some of these themes that that big lux talked about sure so the the novel is uh, told through three different perspectives one perspective is a guy named mikey who's uh a call a recent college grad right he just graduated from ucla his whole life, he's been wanting to get out of the hood, right? That's like the some of the traditions in certain kind of communities where you experience this kind of violence. You know, you don't participate in it, but you don't want to be around it either. Right. Right. So he grew up in that kind of environment. He was into punk rock. I mean, he's into punk rock. He's into post-punk music. He dresses differently than like the community around him. So he's considered whitewashed. You know, people make fun of the way he dresses, the way yeah. he looks. Um, and the gangsters, you know, are constantly like bullying him and so forth. Uh, so at some point, you know, because he can't find a job after he graduated from college, which he assumed that the doors were going to be open for him. Right. And all these opportunities were going to, because when you oh, try to yeah. leave, leave right. the hood and it's like the way out is through college. Right. Right. So you go to college, but then no doors are open. Right. Right. So then Except he's. Starbucks doors. Right. So he's just like kind of stuck Rouse. in this community. Yeah. He's stuck in this community. He doesn't know what to do. He lands a job as a writer. And then the writing takes him to explore the resistance to this urban renewal this gentrification idea yeah so now he's kind of thrust into the hood thrust into the gang world which he always wanted to disconnect from and never wanted to be a part of now his career is based on it and it it's relying on this so that's like a weird kind of like juxtaposition of where he is uh and he has to be objective because on one hand i think you mentioned it earlier he welcomes the changes because he's not like he considers himself different from the people around him. Yeah. You know, so he wants the galleries. He wants... He wants the, to walk down the street with family and not be shot at. Right. That, you right? know, and he, he, he wants to participate in that because he has to go outside of that yeah. to experience that. And like I mentioned earlier, we often want things in our own community. And so he welcomes these changes uh, until he starts hanging out with the gangsters a little bit more and understanding it from their perspective and all the stuff that Big Lux just mentioned of, about like not recognizing your culture anymore, seeing things get erased, whitewashed, you know, there's an erasure of the murals, the community, carnicerias, like all that stuff is in the, in the novel. Yeah. You know, all these all these businesses, uh, these uh, mom and pop shops, pop shops that are uh, being bought out, that are being closed down, uh, and so the gangsters start having uh, uh, a different kind of approach to it. That leads to the second character. The second character is a guy named Lurch. He's uh, the main shot caller of the Culver City gang. Uh, he has a lot of respect in the community 
And so he inspires people like him to take a different approach to gentrification, which is what he knows the best, which is through uh, violence, right? So he resorts to violent, like uh, his perspective and what they were doing in the gang world. And he kind of influences other gangs from the area to say, hey, you know what? Instead of us going at it with each other, maybe we should uh, we should um, transition our, our combat, you know, to these outsiders, to these newcomers, to these gentrifiers, to these people who are changing the community because we're losing it, like you mentioned, right? And so it's those two perspectives. And then the third perspective is from a doctor uh, who um, he grew up also being from the hood, but he got out of the hood. Uh, he's now a successful uh, uh, successful physician, uh, but he didn't want to leave the hood, so he opens up uh, a clinic across the street from the Mar Vista Gardens Housing Projects, and he wants to serve his underserved community. You know, so sometimes people can't pay, and he's okay with that, but he's there. Everybody knows him. You know, he's el doctor. He's the doctor. Everybody comes to him. They know that he's going to treat them well. He's not going to be disrespectful to them. Uh, and he's renting out this facility where his clinic is, which suddenly gets quadrupled, right? Like the rent all of a sudden changes. And so he starts uh, seeing like these changes. He also has a second clinic in Echo Park. He sees the same thing happening in Echo Park that's happening in Mar Vista Gardens. He kind of puts those ideas together. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he starts influencing Lurch, you know, the, the shock hauler through these political ideas the gangsters become politicized, they become radicalized, and so then they transition from being street gang members to, like, a full-blown militia mm-hmm. and using, like, American tactics, right? Like, the right to form a militia, you know, to defend yourself against, you know, some, like, foreign invasion, which they see as uh, these speculators, these gentrifiers coming into their community. They start identifying that as, like, this foreign invasion, Hmm. And so, you know, those are the three different perspectives of the characters. Oh. Yeah, that sounds super creative. And so you just had, I guess, I mean, they the the publisher or whatever they they had a kind of a, a, a um, what was it a party or a or um, just recently where they were promoting the book or whatever last what, night the release yeah the release yeah how yeah. was that. It was great. We had a good turnout. Uh, I did this event with uh, another fellow author, Obed Silva. He wrote a memoir about his father and like a, a conflicting relationship with your father. And then your father passes away. You know, so his his own personal experience of the difficulties of being estranged from your father or like loving your father, but hating your father and, you know, having that difficulty. Sure. Uh, drugs, you know, gangs, all that. And so we had this conversation last night the book release and it was it was uh, really it went really well so and so what's it like to do a book release i mean there's a lot mr and mrs earbuds are listening they they might not ever get a chance to write a book even if they did get a chance to write a book it might not ever get published and then even if they did get published it might not get a release what's it like let us let us live through you okay. Rodrigo. sure sure so uh i'll take it back to my first book release <laughs> that was an interesting event because i got a a tattoo done while getting while while, uh, while signing books. Right. Right. So I was like, you know, what would be interesting is if I actually got a tattoo done while I was signing books and I'm left handed. Right. I'm a lefty. So I was like, 
let's let this dude tattoo me on the right hand. Right. And I'm over here, you know, signing books with my left hand. Right. And just like. Was it Frank Ball Sr. that was tattooing you or Mr. Cartoon? Uh, Stan Corona of oh. Good Time Charlie's. All okay. right. Very yeah. good. Hey, that's where that's where uh, Frank Ball Jr. actually works at. Is that, that where Frank Ball Jr. works? Yeah. Good All time right. Charlie's right on. Yeah. Right on. All right, so that was like that was my first experience, and uh, I really liked the the dynamic of the event because I had brought in like different types of people for the event. Yeah, you know, so uh, being into rock and roll, like the garage scene, a garage rock scene, we invited some friends to come play. So right. there was like there was live music, there was a tattoo. Mm-hmm. I mean, the tattoo session going on, me signing books. There was, was also food. Motley there. Nah, nah, nah. <laughs> now, yeah. let me ask you this. So at this last release, though, mm-hmm. I mean, so, I mean, do, 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 like, do people stand in line for you to sign the book? or Yeah. What? yeah? yeah and like, yeah. I know you're obviously a humble man and an academic and an intellectual. And you probably don't get excited by these kinds of things. But was it kind of cool to be like, yeah, this is. And did you write your full name or did you just put Rodrigo? I mean, uh, I, I usually just do like a very like basic <laughs> thanks for your support. Right, yeah. and then like dedication to whoever, like who do I make it out to? Right, right. They tell me their name. Right, you know, I say thanks for your support, and I just sign my name, like right. just a quick signature. And uh, is your family super supportive, or are they like, yeah, finally, or were they like, look, bro, if it hasn't happened by now, it ain't gonna happen, and then finally you get this release, and they're like all on board, or like, how's that? Is was there a little bit of a struggle there? Unfortunately, and this is for a different topic, but and another conversation. But I don't have a good relationship with my family. Got it. So, uh, with the exception of my sister and uh, her children, uh, I don't have a relationship with my brothers or my mother. And my father passed away a few years ago. Well, I'm sorry so, to hear about the passing of your yeah, father. Thank you. Mm-hmm. My my father passed away too. So, but okay. But I mean, does it feel like you've made it? Or does it still feel like there's so much more for you to do now uh, that you've had this second book published and the second release? I mean, it's it's not just a one-off. Uh, yeah, I never feel like I've gotten there. Right. So I always feel like it's just the beginning. Uh, I read that somewhere as well. Like if you if you always tell yourself and convince yourself that this is just the beginning, then you'll never be complacent and you'll just continue to push yourself to do more work. Right. You know, so I'm constantly doing other work, you know, whether it's film, uh, screenwriting, novels, essays, like I do a variety of different things. I curate art shows as well. So I'm involved in different aspects of the arts and humanities, you know, just to continue with my practice. And let's just get down to brass tacks. Let's stop lying to ourselves. What's the hardest part about writing for you? Uh, so actually very simple. Uh, I have three kids that are under six. <laughs> wow. So now up. <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, lack of sleep. Right. But it's yeah. also uh, like just finding the time. Yeah. To write. Uh, because sometimes, you know, you'll find a block of time and you'll say, OK, all the kids are in school like they're or they're asleep or they're taking a nap or whatever it is. And then you decide, you know, I kind of don't want to do anything right now. I just want to watch TV or I just want to go for a jog or whatever it is. And, yeah. like, and you don't want to do the work. So a lot of it is self-motivation. Right. You know, and that's the difficulty is just to sit down and do the work. It's always like that's the challenge. You sit down. You, you got to do the work. The work's never going to do itself. I'm jealous, man. 
I was jealous ever since we had the first conversation. And then you tell me it's your second book. And I've got fucking 400 pages written of my book. And uh, I remember I was trying to, at one point in time, send it over to Chumon. I'm like, I need you to just take a look. He's like, don't send me anything. Wait, when it's done, then send it. Don't send me any half written or... So I've had this, and man, it's been like, honestly, it's been like a couple years that I'll write a little and add to it. And um, I, my, my brain kind of works in chronological order. I have a dear friend named Kevin Bish who's a pretty um, uh, accomplished writer. Yeah. And so I, I, I go to him with different things sometimes, just advice. And he gave me a couple pieces of advice. And uh, one was he, 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 said, uh, he said, stop thinking that you're going to write the whole thing in order he's like it's when you go to a, a publisher or you get with an editor like it, it could be re, it could be moved around a million different ways right so he's like just start writing like you, the stories all the stories that you have in your head just if they're little incidents or little just start putting those together so that's made it easier sometimes i can sit and write for 20 30 minutes and pump out an episode of my of, of life that i want in the book um and then the other thing was that I remember I, I I gave him like a couple hundred pages to read. Yeah. How was that? Right. No, no, not to him. Not oh, to, to him. To the other to, guy. To Kevin Bish. Yeah. Right, but Kev, Kevin hey, did Kevin. call me. He called me up and he said, Chumahan. Now shut the fuck up. He said, I got 200 pages of <laughs> no. the hottest fucking no. autobiography. You know something? This I is fucking him. gold. No, it wasn't. I, I gave him early on. I gave him 50. It was like 45, 50 pages at the beginning. And he read it and he's like bro you got to keep writing and he goes check this out i did a little something uh, and what he did is when he sent it back for me to read he had moved past like uh, it opens up like hey i was born and da 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 to a father <laughs> he went all the ways to like this heavy experience i had that probably shows up somewhere around page 35 or 45 and he moved that one experience to the, to front. the very opening right. of the book. and when i read it I got chills. And he was like, bro, that's where your story starts, right there. And I was like, fuck. I was like, how do you do that? And he goes, well, I went to school for a long time to become a writer. You know, so it, he did that. And what it did is it showed me that I don't need to be concerned with what it's laying out like, that I just need to write. You right. Know? Um, but it's it's hard. It's sometimes I, I don't even want to say it's hard because I don't like putting that into the universe. But I found it challenging. And sometimes I feel like I get into these flows and it's easy. But other times it's really like, it's difficult to get in there and just, and then he, the other last thing he told me, I think you've told me this too. And that was like, he's like, schedule the time. Fuck. Like from this time to that time, commit that that's your time that you got to write. Like that's what, make it, schedule what it. Rodrigo was talking yeah, about. He's yeah. like, I scheduled it, but then I don't always want to write. So yeah. with all that being said, I need some of your expertise <laughs> advice on yeah. For sure, for sure. Uh, I mean, that approach that that guy gave you, uh, that's like in, in what film we consider the inciting incident, right? So it happens very early on, and it sets the stage. You know, it's something kind of dramatic, right? So it captures the audience immediately. Right. I did that in my documentary, the one that won. Yeah, he's you a know, screenplay writer. So that's interesting that, that you say that. Yeah, right. so it's like in the first three minutes, like if you don't have that inciting incident. I mean, the, usually it's done in the first 10 minutes, but because film has changed so much, 
and we're constantly consuming TV shows and movies. We want things to happen quicker, right? right? So the sooner it happens, the sooner you can engage the audience in something that's dramatic to, uh, or, or that somebody can relate to. In my documentary, the opening line by one of the artists, he says, the motherfuckers that know me, you know, from back in the day, you know, and he starts talking about prison and it's, you know, it's a, uh, successful, you know, tattoo artist, muralist, Big Sleeps. It's from the Pico mm-hmm. Union area. Mm-hmm. That's his opening line. And when I was editing the film and putting it together, I was like, that's the that's scene. That's it. That's it right there. You know, because right away, it sets the stage for what is to come. Right. You know, like, who is this guy who you're showing pictures pictures of him in Norway and then pictures of him in prison, but then all of a sudden, it's just like, what happened there? Where's the transition? What's the trajectory? Right. Right. Where is he today? Like in your case, you know, so if you, show, if you show something dramatic right at the beginning, but the success that has happened and where you are today, you know, it can, it definitely keeps people interested. Gotcha. Uh, so. Yeah. I'm, I, I've switched completely over to voice text writing on my autobiography. Completely over because another thing that I get hung up on and I'm in my autobiography and I'm, I'm at the age of 15, 16 when I'm having an illicit sexual relationship with a 32-year-old woman. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, no. But the thing is... is <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, but the point of it is, is I get hung up on the voice. Like, I start writing, and I'm, like, looking at it, and then I'm, like, thinking about how it sounds, and I'm like, eh, this isn't really... It doesn't sound... It sounds like somebody's writing. So then uh, eventually that's led me to voice texting and actually just talking it out and just saying, you know, whatever it is that I'd say, just like I would on the show. Just be like, fuck, you know, it's this thing, that thing, because I think part of a part of it for 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 me is the delivery of and then it's also easier because I've got like a three year old or whatever. So, I mean, I write 30 minutes a day every day every fucking day even when i don't feel like it it's hard to do and and it's even harder if i have to sit down and actually try to type on a computer that would i used to do that it used to drive me fucking ape shit i do that at fucking work all day so like i come home and i just talk right into the voice text and tell it like i would on the show just say it like i would yeah the advice that i give anybody is whatever works for you go with that because everybody's process is different and big lux i want to say like i'm a little jealous of you because you still have people that are that want to read your work very early on i don't have that anymore i used to do that to my wife and my close friends like hey man can you read these 100 pages these 50 pages i want to see how it's sounding and my wife now she says don't send me anything until it's completely finished and published like i don't want to read anything prior to that do you guys ever get into arguments about like so you sent her something and then she's like well i'm not really feeling the emotion and then you start defending it like did you guys did you go through all that years ago yeah 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 yeah, (laughs) years ago now it's like i I don't need to send her anything until it's done it's published check out this article that's already been published you know uh, and Does so, she finally give you the respect that a masculine author is <laughs> deserving of? Finally, does she say, "Wow, you did it, man!" Yes, excellent. For sure. That's Congratulations, awesome. wow. congratulations. So, ladies and gentlemen, the displaced, a novel by Rodrigo Rivera de Evre. He is an amazing author. This you is gotta his, go get this book, you guys. Yeah, you gotta go get all his books. Uh, it's on Kindle. It's on Amazon. 
Um, we'll put up a, a link to it on uh, the post here. Absolutely. Right? He's, he's, he's an author. He's written a book before. You should get that one, Urban Politics. Uh, we also want to say check out the movie Dark Progressivism, documentary by this talented gentleman who uh, came down to the Hard Luck Show. And we appreciate that, huh? Man, I want to... Uh... I want to thank you, bro. And you know what? I'm glad that you shared all that you do, bro, besides writing. Yeah. You know? It's, it's, you're just a creative force. Yeah. Uh, in a world that I share. I'm in a lot of, like, very similar stuff, you know? I've been around art my whole life. And, and I would like to continue to uh, stay in contact with you and see where, where we can possibly meet on some things, you know? And, For sure. Uh, and help Definitely. each other. And um, You have a place here. At the Hard Luck Show. Yeah. So Thank you. whatever that. you got going on, you know, we're going to put this up on our platform. We're going to promote this. Um, anything you got going on, you can send us a flyer. You can send me something. We'll hey. post story. We'll help you get the name out. And I, I, I only want to see you win. And I want people to get turned on to what you're creating in your work, man. So Including love any that. art shows or things that and, you're yeah, curating. Sure. If you got artists or guys that you think or gals that need some exposure or people need to know about, let us know. Let man. us know. I will. Yeah. yeah. Appreciate it. Thank awesome. you very much. Where thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Love the hard luck show. Yeah. yeah thanks, brother. Thanks. Hell yeah. yeah. Uh, listen, it's the American Indian Ovando Bowen LLP. We wear braids to court. Let the Tomahawks fly the best legal representation that money can buy. Supermaxhardware.com. Uh, we are dropping summer capsule. About uh, about seven days, eight days. So keep your eyes open. Cookies SF. Um, cookies clothing and vibes papers. Candle buds uh, and pulpo beard oil. Go ahead and give them all some support. Right. Uh, shout out to Esteban Oriol and the Soul Assassins. Yes. Happy 30th anniversary to DJ Muggs wow. today. Wow. And, uh, yeah. Oh, um, Big Pick Mike, shout out for not showing up Yeah, today. thanks for not showing up. Sean and then Sean, Movemental. Dot Media, oh, Blue Eyes, uh, for all your audio needs. If you think you got a podcast in you, you probably don't. No. But he can record it and make it sound dope. That's right. Uh, Sean Lewis. Sean uh, Lewis. And then uh, Illegit- Instagram. Oh, Ill- uh, Instagram Jesus, right? Illegitimate son of, of uh, Frank, Frank Sinatra. Frank Sinatra, right. Old Blue Eyes. Uh, old Blue Eyes. And so Instagram Jesus, thank you. Instagram Jesus, thank you. Jesus blesses you, Jesus. Yes, indeed. Indeed. Uh, and with that? And with that, thank you again, Rodrigo. You thank guys, you for having me. Displaced. Get this book. Right. Available everywhere. Adios amigos from our luck show. <laughs>